0: Hello, I'm Jesse Wolves from Eagle Hawk Presbyterian Church. We're a church seeking to make disciple making disciples of Jesus. Thank you to Life FM for continuing to host us. Today, as we look to God's Word, our reading is Genesis 3 14 24, so you can begin looking that up now. And while you're getting that ready, I'll pray, asking God to bless us as we read and consider His Word. Read the passage. And then we'll go to the sermon. And so let's pray. Our God, we praise you for your word. Without your word, we are in the dark and we can't know you. But your word brings light and life. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray. May we treasure your word like fine gold. In Jesus' name, amen. And now let's read Genesis 3, 14-24. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, curse to you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. On the very first page of The Pilgrim's Progress, the classic story written by john Bunyan in sixteen seventy eight, we meet a man dressed in rags, with a burden, a load, on his back, reading a book and crying. He tried to keep his misery to himself, but eventually it got too much for him. He had to tell his wife and children what was on his mind. He told them of his burden, which troubled him, the weight of his guilt at rebelling against the king of the heavenly city, was overwhelming. And, added to his burden, in the book he was reading, he discovered that the city they were living in was doomed to be destroyed. Fire would come from heaven. His wife and children didn't believe him. They were cold towards him. They mocked him, treated him rudely. Sometimes they tell him off for thinking such ridiculous thoughts. His imagination was on overdrive, and he should be ashamed of himself. But Christian knew he was living in the city of destruction. He knew everyone in that city was doomed, unless he and they found a way to escape. One day he was in a field, reading the book of God's law, which had put the burden on his back, and in his distress he called out, as he had at other times, "'What shall I do to be saved?' we have a message to share. And the message Christian shared with his family is part of it. He didn't yet know the full story. He didn't yet know how he could be saved. But before he could desire to be saved, he needed to know how helpless he was in the face of the coming disaster. He needed to know there was a coming disaster. We're up to part four of Christianity 101. The first two parts were incredibly positive. First, God is the loving maker and ruler of the world. Second, God made humanity in his image. But things went downhill quickly. Third, we've all rebelled against God's loving rule. That fact put the burden on Christian's back, which he couldn't shake. But his dread came from what we're thinking about today. God justly judges our rebellion. Our message isn't all gumdrops and rainbows. It's a serious message. Until people know God justly judges our rebellion, Jesus will make no sense to them. They won't think they need him. So we need to be clear. God justly judges our rebellion. Only then is it possible that they'll cry out, like Christian, what shall I do to be saved? Let's think about what God's judgment looks like. In our first heading, we see suffering and death. That's an obvious place we see God's judgment, as people suffer and ultimately die. As you cast your eyes over the judgments God pronounced on the woman and the man in Genesis 3, you'll see a wide variety of suffering. Pain in childbirth, pain in relationships between husband and wife, work once a sweet blessing is now full of difficulties. Providing for his family will be backbreaking, and ultimately, he'll return to the dust of the ground in death. Something I appreciate about the Bible is how honest it is about the hardness of life. We see many stories of real people suffering through these exact situations. We see the difficulty of infertility, pregnancy, miscarriage, labour, raising children. We see difficult relationships, the struggle of work, the pain of death. The Bible doesn't have rose-coloured glasses about life. Whenever we suffer, one of the questions we ask is, Why? Why is this happening to me? We lift our eyes to God and ask Him why He'd allow this. We might even be bold enough to accuse Him of wrongdoing. How could you do this to me? Living in 21st century Australia, it's almost like we expect to go through life with bubble wrap around us. Companies use bubble wrap when what they're packing is fragile, to keep it safe. Very often we think that's what our life is meant to be. Safe. Protected. But this is where knowing the story of the Bible is so important. Because it tells us that our life was meant to be safe. We were in paradise, walking safely with God, enjoying life, enjoying Him, with work perfectly satisfying, relationships wonderfully fulfilling. That was the life God prepared for us, full of only joy and peace. But we rebelled against Him. We rejected His plan for us. And so, Genesis 3.23 The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We think we're entitled to live in the safety of the garden when we reject the rule of the God who placed us there. We expect a life without suffering and hardship when we've all turned away from God, the giver of life. Whenever we're talking about suffering and judgment, we always need to be careful. We should always clarify that this doesn't mean every new moment of suffering is linked to a specific sin. You didn't have a car accident because you spoke angrily to your workmate. Of course, sometimes the sin is directly linked to the judgment. Illicit sex could lead to disease, divorce, loss of reputation, more. Generally, our suffering and death aren't linked to specific sins we commit. But all our suffering is linked to the first sin, the first act of rebellion. Because of that sin, we're all born outside the garden. In Luke 13, we're told the story of Pilate killing Galileans while they offered sacrifices. It would have been horrific. And Jesus said that they weren't any worse than anyone else, but they served as a warning that unless we repent, we will also perish. Sin is the reason why we suffer. It's God's judgment. When we sin, we're announcing we want a world without him. And he gives us a taste of what that's like. Most of the time, we don't know why particular people suffer in particular ways, but we do know why we experience suffering generally. We have a message to share, and part four of that message is, God justly judges our rebellion. But this is a highly sensitive part of the message. This gives an intellectual reason for suffering, a a general understanding of why it exists. But it's probably not what we should focus on when, like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, they're locked up in Giant Despair's castle. Proverbs 25.11 reminds us a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. We need to make sure our words are fitly spoken, that they're the right words, but also they're said at the right time. Being intellectual about the ultimate cause of suffering might help some people, but not most people when they're suffering. What they need to hear is hope. They need us to focus on the next parts of the story, where through Jesus' death, God promises an end to suffering and death. But that doesn't mean we ignore this part of the story, or that we should be ashamed of the story. God is just, and he justly judges our rebellion. But we do want to be sensitive to the current suffering, the raw pain people are going through. God justly judges our rebellion, and we experience that in suffering and death, and also as creation groans. This isn't completely separate from the first. People often suffer and die as creation groans. This is part of God's judgment on Adam. The ground would produce thorns and thistles. Just like Adam had rebelled against God, the one with authority over him, now creation would rebel against those meant to have authority over it. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 8. He says in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Then in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We're a nation, a city, that knows this hard truth very personally. I wasn't here, but many of you were for the Black Saturday fires, 7th of February 2009. A horrible mixture of extreme heat, drought, and allegedly awful decisions by some youths who were deemed mentally unfit to stand trial because of their intellectual disabilities. From my quick research, one person died from the fires in Long Gully, and 61 houses were destroyed. There were around 400 individual fires in Victoria, and 173 people died. Our world has experienced tragedy after tragedy, and lives have been lost, homes and livelihoods destroyed. There's been fires, floods, droughts, earthquakes, tornadoes, cyclones, monsoons, tidal waves, lightning strikes. And we call them natural disasters. But the Bible won't let us think about natural disasters without thinking of God. Yes, it's entirely possible to think about all these events from a purely scientific perspective. Various environmental conditions coming together, the constant movement of the Earth's crust, electrical charges and gases in the atmosphere. That's how these events happen. But to only think about natural disasters that way isn't enough. We might ask the question: why is the water in the kettle boiling? You could answer it by saying the electrical current is causing the heating element to generate heat, causing the water molecules inside the kettle to heat. That's one answer, but it's not the ultimate answer. In our house, the ultimate answer for why the kettle is boiling is, Beck wants a cup of tea. God is ultimately behind every event in our universe. He says in Isaiah 45, verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Abraham Kuyper, one time Dutch prime minister and theologian, said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Which means the tragedies of life. The natural disasters, the events which cause us pain, come to us with a purpose. They're not random. They have a purpose for the believer, which we'll talk about in a later week. But for the unbeliever, it's the trumpet of warning. When I was in primary school, they started playing music over the speakers five minutes before we were meant to be inside. It was a warning. Our sufferings, the groanings of creation are God's judgment against our rebellion. And they're also a warning for what's to come. God justly judges our rebellion. He judges through suffering and death, and through creation groaning. But one day, he'll bring it all to an end. In our third heading, we see final wrath is coming. We get uncomfortable talking about God's judgment. But everyone longs for justice. I was speaking with someone this week about the Black Saturday fires, and he was angry that those who lit it didn't get sent away. He's angry at the whole justice system, and he blames them and their light sentences for much of the young violent crime, because kids know they can get away with it. See, we all want justice, but we remain convinced our rebellion isn't so bad. It doesn't warrant suffering and death, it shouldn't have resulted in the rest of creation groaning, and we certainly shouldn't suffer in hell for eternity. And the reason so many of us think this way is because we've forgotten who God is. We think it's nothing to reject him, to refuse to worship him and live for him. It's nothing if we live for the weekend, our children, money, cruises, leisure, sport... Replacing the immortal God for things which won't last or ultimately satisfy. But God says in Isaiah 46, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. He is the eternal God. To commit a crime against the eternal one deserves eternal punishment. If we refuse to love and honour him now, there's only one option for us after death. Heaven is God's home. Why should he welcome us in when we've rebelled against him here? His home is perfect. Why should he let imperfection in? We hate it when people get away with their crimes. When someone speeds past us, we're wishing the police were right around the corner, ready to catch this person in the act. We're angry when someone we think is guilty of a crime walks free from court. We're even angry when someone is found guilty and is punished, but isn't punished enough. God is holy. He hates wrongdoing more than we do. He's not a doting grandfather who ruffles our hair at our amusing naughtiness. He is love, but he's also holy. He's righteous, he's just, and God justly judges our sins. And the day of his final wrath, his great anger, is coming. We've seen glimpses of that anger through the Bible, warning us of the final day of his wrath. We read about the great flood, the plagues in Egypt, the conquest of Canaan. One day we'll all appear before this holy God, sitting on his throne, the maker of everything ever created, visible and invisible, the giver of his good and gracious law, and there'll be nothing we can say. No defence to make. We're guilty. Every one of us. With every sin, every act of rebellion, we cast God from our lives. And there'll be nothing in us which could stop him rightly casting us away from him into his prison, the place of torment, away from his gracious smile. And on that day, no one will be able to claim it's unfair. God's holiness and justice will shine like the sun and the darkness of our sin will be plain. We won't be able to hide it. At the first house we moved into in Eagle Hawk, the tiles were a glaring white and every speck of dust was visible. Every speck of sin will be visible and God will be shown right when he judges. We have a message to share. People need to know the danger they're in. This might seem like an unloving message to give. But the doctor isn't thought of as cruel when he gives the tragic diagnosis. He gives the diagnosis so he can tell you the treatment. If we love our family, our friends, our neighbours, we need to warn them. Disaster is coming. God justly judges our rebellion and his final wrath is on its way. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It's what we deserve. There hasn't been much grace or hope given in this or the last sermon. Remember, we're thinking about the message we have to share. We saw God is the loving maker and ruler of the world. He made humanity in his image. But we've all rebelled against God's loving rule, and so God justly judges our rebellion. But there is hope. The solution to our problem is on the way, but the only way we'll want to hear this good news is if we understand the bad news. Only when we hear the wages of sin is death will the next phrase make any sense. Only when we understand our tragic plight, like Christian, as he read from the book of God's law, will we delight in those next words But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God justly judges our rebellion. Don't be ashamed to share the black news of sin and judgment. Only against that black sky will the stars of God's mercy and kindness be seen. Where Jesus takes our sin, dies our death, suffers our judgment. God justly judges our rebellion. But as we'll see next week more clearly, Jesus came to be justly judged for our sin. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that your word speaks truth, that it reveals to us who we are, what we have done, and that we cannot save ourselves. We pray that all those listening would be believing this message and not trying to find their own way to you, not trying to make up for their sin, but, Lord, that they would come to Jesus because eternal life can only be found in him. Lord, may we all know this. May none of us give up the truth of this, seeking after false gods, false ways for forgiveness. Our God, forgive us because Jesus has died for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm Jesse Wolves from Eagle Hawk Presbyterian Church, and I pray you've been blessed as you've spent this time in God's Word. Next week, we'd love to have you join us in person for our service at 10am. I hope to see you there. And as always, if you'd like to make a comment on what you've heard today, you have a question, or you're looking for a church, then please get in contact with us. Our website is eaglehawkpc.org.au. You can also contact us through Facebook or Instagram. God bless you.